Knockout Ginger, episode 15 with Rob Grieve. Guitar player, composer, improviser, rock and roller, country twanger, hashtag prairie energy. Uh, Rob uses a bunch of words that I don't recognize. I try to keep up, but, you know. Rob needs to start a podcast. Email me at knockoutginger at gmail.com. F all the haters. First of all, no one's listening, so... (laughs) There's that. Right. Um, I mean, maybe that's what you should call the podcast. First of all, no one's listening. I feel like that would be an appropriate name for a podcast by a jazz bass player. Oh. Scorched. (sighs) Damn. But I, I don't know if you play jazz or the bass like really right correct but from your own um musings first of all no one's listening might be my thesis oh yeah Yeah, particularly when it comes to chord scale relationships. No one's listening. When it comes to anything, though, also. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Even when um, people are listening. Listening even- might be the most subversive thing that you can do nowadays. Even when people are listening statistically mm-hmm. they're not even engaged mm. how how no. does one make a statistic out of that well when i look at the numbers on my podcasts yeah <laughs> oh i see <laughs> particularly your podcast yeah okay yeah yes well you know i, I well why do we do it Uh, well, most things I would say that I don't do it for people to listen, Mm -hmm. but this is like kind of specifically for people to listen. Oh, you know, like Mm. this is part of, this is part of the, this is part of the exit strategy or not the exit strategy, the, uh. Like, the idea is to build this up Mm -hmm. so we have an audience. Right. And then from there, you have an audience that I I have an audience that I can share cool stuff with. Right. And share cool people with. Yeah, yeah. Ostensibly, it's like like a community building. Yeah. Yeah. So, listening, this is like the one occasion where I care about the amount of people that are listening. (laughs) Right, 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 right. I get get it. What you're, what you're saying about that. So what do you want them to listen to? This. Well, yeah. I mean. And then from here, 
Well, I don't. I don't know. Well, I I mean, like particularly in this instance. What do you mean? Well, I don't know. What are you trying to say? I need people to listen to this podcast. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're being we're being pedantic already. Oh no. Uh, what was the last thing you listened to? Like music wise? Yeah. Um. I listened to. Um, oh, I got a Yellow Eyes, Rare Field Ceiling. I think is the name of the record. It's like a black metal record. Uh, I listened to that at Red Eye today while I was closing. Um, I listened to that and I listened to Dimensional Bleed Through by Kralis. I was in a black metal kind of mood. I like, uh, I really like um, Death Heaven. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I've never really checked it out, to be honest. I like it. It's like... uh, I don't know what attracts me to that over other black metal, mm-hmm. but it seems like it's a little bit more easy listening. Oh yeah, than a lot of the black metal that I've been exposed to. I don't know. It, it I mean, it's kind of funny <clears throat> that genre. I feel like black metal, <clears throat> by and large, is more melodic than. Um. Well, I don't know. I don't know what the general like public, uh, like what most people when they think of black metal think it sounds like i i think that a lot of the aesthetic is carried in the like this sort of like funny like people in makeup and robes like running around in the woods Mm -hmm. and like screaming satan or something but um because like dialex meeks for instance he's like really into black metal and he always he has like a really great way of describing it where it's like you jump off a cliff and you're going terminal velocity, but you want to go faster. And that's like what black metal is trying to do. But I don't think, or according to Dialex, but I don't know if that's like always necessarily the case. Like there's a lot of it that's like, it's not just like noise, like just intense picking and, and like blast beats or whatever. There's a lot that's like pretty melodic. Um, like some of the Ulver stuff is pretty melodic sometimes. And even Kralis can be really melodic. And actually that rare field ceiling, the yellow eyes record has a lot of very melodic moments. I don't think it's, it's like, I think they like more give off this like idea that they're like super intense, but it's, I don't know. It can be really beautiful. I feel like there's like, um, like, with music, if the, I think people like maybe would say with music that the object is sound or something, <clears throat> which I think is a bit of a mischaracterization, but that's just me. Like if the object is hearing, then, um, then you always are sort of dealing with this like indeterminacy, you know what I mean? Which I don't, by indeterminacy, I don't mean like subjectivity. I don't mean like this infinitely proliferating like sets of like understandings necessarily. I just mean that, um, I want to use this, um, this example to describe it, but I don't know if it's just going to be like really, but I'll just do it anyway. So there's, um, are you aware of the brightness confound? Nope. It was like, um. I believe it was Wittgenstein, the like 
empiricist like guy back in the late 1800s. I no idea had this. Okay. So like Isaac Newton describes like brightness or like describes color as being like, there's like three dimensions, right? There's like intensity, hue, and I don't know. Uh, I can't remember what the third one is. It's basically like comes down to like how bright it is, like what this, the frequency is. And, and, um, you might, you might describe it as like amplitude and, uh, frequency. And, uh, I can't remember what the third parameter is right now. Hue, brightness, and something else. But, um, but that's just like to describe some sort of like you, you can only use that to describe light and color and all these kinds of phenomenon insofar as they're only describing like those three parameters. And so Wittgenstein, the empiricist, his like problem with it is that if he's looking at this table and in fact, this table in front of us, I know it probably doesn't matter to anybody's listening, but you know, you look at it and if you look at this like bright spot on it, like at what point, like that bright spot is like somehow more white than the rest of the white of the table. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not like the rest of the table is less white than that spot. It's just like somehow the brightness is messing with your perception. So like to say that sound is like light is the object of seeing sort of misses that vision is literally the experience of seeing. It's not like, it's not like you're seeing light. You know what I mean? You're removing yourself sort of from the situation. So like we're talking about music, we're talking about sound as the object of music. We're talking about like some sort of like Euclidean plane where we're only talking about partials and whatever. But, but really like the object is hearing. So if we're, if you're talking about like, um, the intensity of a black metal song, as it like becomes more and more bright perhaps, or like whatever you want to say more and more intense, there's more sound coming into your ears. Like then your ears sort of adjust like the, like as light becomes more bright, you know, your retinas or your, what do they call them? The little, your iris, your iris is closed, right. To like allow. So your, your experience of the light changes as the light, like autonomically. It's the same with sound where your experience of the sound changes autonomically as you listen to it. So you're listening to this like really intense sound like you could be at a super loud concert. You wouldn't realize that it's a super loud concert until you leave. And you're like, Oh my God, like mm-hmm. I can't hear anything. So yeah. I mean, like there's, I'm just saying there's like a crossover point. Yeah. Almost, where it's like the, well, I had a thought, but I don't know if it applies. Go ahead. But the, like the idea that when you, when you're listening to a band, mm-hmm. well, it's what exactly we just said. Loud is only loud in comparison to how quiet, the band is playing Mm -hmm. so you don't notice and if it's all loud you don't notice Mm -hmm. really yeah unless you're bleeding yeah yeah and you're like oh my god okay i I need to go see a doctor (laughs) yeah but um yeah and like i think that's why i find dialex's um talking about like going terminal velocity but going even faster is like really interesting because it i think it describes um it describes an experience right like it describes like a maximum like a limit experience, but then like somehow breaking through the limit experience and allowing your perception to become more than it was, you know? Mm. Yeah. I see. That's what I like about black metal. So I, so many words, I think maybe, um, deaf heaven doesn't have that. Well, I think it's a more mellow thing to my ears anyway. For sure. I don't know. 
But um, so maybe it's not even is deaf heaven black metal? Maybe not. Well, I mean, it's just a word, like you know, <laughs> this is like the semantic coordinates are kind of like whatever it is. But like, it, it, it doesn't matter. And also, like deaf heaven. Yeah, it's not necessarily like this going terminal velocity thing. But I'm, I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is that like, um, the intensity of the music has very little to do with like how faster it's going or whatever, right? Like, obviously, Deaf Heaven is still a pretty intense for most people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know. Um, but what, what, what do you think makes them not as, not black metal? If, if you were to say they're not black metal. Well, I don't know what black metal is. Yeah, right. But, but like, but you, you know. It just, to me, it doesn't totally their sound doesn't totally sync up with your description of black metal. Right. But what, what does that even mean? Who knows? <clears throat> to me, there's like, it's just not as crazy. And there's like a, maybe a little bit more melody mm-hmm. than what I'm, I'm super tongue tied. I'm having trouble getting words out. Um, the, what, I mean, what I'm, fuck. <laughs> it's a little bit more chill and there's more melody. Yeah, yeah. Is what I was trying to get out. Yeah. <laughs> but, and it's like a really intense scream. Right. Like, a, it's more of a shriek mm-hmm. than a scream. I don't know. But I think, you know, you need those moments of, like, not intensity. You know, it's kind of relational, right? Like, co- composition like that's literally what it means is like relationality you know like co-positionality do you use any of this when you play any of these concepts does this does this filter into your music or how you write or anything yeah yeah definitely like sounds in comparison to each other and or i believe the word for that is contrast (laughs) 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 contrasting yeah. Um, well, in particular, lately, there's this French composer. I've probably been regaling everyone about like nonstop, but this French composer named um, Pascal Creton, I've gotten really into, and uh, I think she sort of like her music really describes it to me very well, or describes sort of I think these like minimal thresholds where um, you you cease to be aware of like what has changed, but you know, something has changed at some point. You know what I mean? It's like a topological transformation that sort of happens without you realizing that it's happened. Like, um, what's an example? Um, there's some, I mean, paint drying or something, Yeah, you know, like the color of the paint will change very slightly. And I'm not saying that listening to Pascal Creton's music is like watching paint dry. I think that, you know, that's <laughs> obviously that kind of is not the best uh, way to describe something. But it's well, like, like there's moments when you like sometimes there's recordings that I listen to with solos. Yeah. And I don't sometimes I don't notice when the solo changes or when the soloist changes rather. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like a. Wait, how did you describe it? What? The uh, shift? The shift of 
Was there a word that you used? I said topological transformation, but I think that's a little jargon, jargony. Like, um, like it, uh, it, I mean, yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either, but I, uh, well, it kind of like in that case, it's sort of like starts to beg the question like what why solos or what what makes a solo and and um why is it part of our tradition and if i mean you don't even have to necessarily ask why is it part of our tradition but what is what does soloing do and like you know at least what does it do for you are you asking me yeah Uh, i don't know (laughs) i don't know i really don't know there's a There's like a history of virtuosity, anyway, and and like appreciation for virtuoso performance. Yeah, I I feel like generally, uh, with like solo based music or Mm -hmm. like yeah, solo based music, generally, the soloist brings energy for me. Right. And if the soloist isn't bringing energy, there's almost no point of having a solo in solo-centric music. Right. But I realize that that sort of uh, energy or like aggression or whatever Mm -hmm. is also not part of... It's not really something on my radar when it's not solo-based music. Mm-hmm. I think it only applies to like a very specific like angry jazz, battle jazz almost. Yeah. Or something. I, I like that the battle jazz. I remember specifically going to jazz camp when I was like thirteen and was like leading the the big band that I was in doing this. Jazz uh camp. who's the jazz FM guy? Oh I I don't know. Is maybe whatever doesn't matter. I'll cut that out. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure doesn't have anything to do with jazz FM. But I don't know. I don't know. I haven't talked to the guy in a long time. But uh, but I I just remember like one day I found out in hindsight. Man, this is kind of throwing him under the bus. But I found out in hindsight like all the teachers had gone out the pre- previous night and gotten smashed and were like all hungover. So he came into big band. He's like, oh, we don't need to rehearse. We're fine. And he put on this Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers DVD, <laughs> which like. In hindsight, it's funny because it's like, I'm hungover and we're going to watch this DVD. But like for me, when he, as like a little guy, wanted to play jazz and I saw like Wayne Shorter ripping, I was stoked. And in my head, I was like, these are like warriors, you know, (laughs) that's kind of. That's how I feel. Yeah. And if it does like. But it's not always like that. I mean, particularly that era of the jazz messengers is definitely like that yes like free for all is so intense you know yeah but like that's a that's a thing that still applies to like there's a certain pocket of music where that's like a very important piece of the puzzle yeah the aggression but also not always is it the aggression i use the word aggression because i feel like it's like angry energy Mm. Where's the anger coming from? 
We're like, uh, I don't know, like why slavery? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. But like, we're know. not slaves, like, right? You know, but I mean, ostensibly, <laughs> depending on totally. But like, if we figure out, you and I will never understand. Yeah, but if we figure out how to play this music properly, there's some of that in us. Mm-hmm. But carried through the history, carried through of yeah. how we're picking up this music yeah yeah if we do it the right way yeah well i definitely i feel like to play jazz and not be appreciative of of that contribution or to play improvised music at all almost to like even to participate in playing music in the 21st century particularly in north america and not acknowledge how powerful that the impact fuck it like even to do anything and not acknowledge the impact of these particular individuals. I don't know. It's it's frustrating. It can be really frustrating. I think the way people like talk about it and and deal with it. And this is like the specific and only thing keeping me out of grad school. Oh, that. Yeah, mm-hmm. this idea and how to figure that out and navigate uh, how music is taught and appreciated and played mm-hmm. by white men in institutions mm. is uh, extremely problematic. Yeah. And not all of them. Like, I'm. Yeah, well. It's like just a generalization, but. I mean, and, and, like institutions are problematic yeah like not not necessarily the people in them i mean yeah i don't know institutions are subject to capital and they pretty much you know okay i feel like this is a really apt um so recently was fred hampton's birthday right so i read an article about all that wild shit that happened with the FBI. You know Fred Hampton, mm-hmm. right? And like Willie O'Neill and everything. Um, where were they going with this? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Willie O'Neill was asked to report to Hoover, whatever the guy who was like ran the FBI at the time, or ran whatever unit was specifically dealing with the Black Panthers. And, uh, and he was asked to report about like what Fred Hampton was up to. And he just literally had only been like serving poor folks food and like, you know, giving speeches and like educating people because that was like the mandate of the Black Panthers as a Marxist movement, trying to educate people, trying to feed people, you know, and trying to prevent, you know, people from being um, abused by the state basically you know because they didn't feel like the state had their back because they didn't anyways um so he'd only been doing all these like philanthropic things like you know basically being a saint and um what's his name hoover got back to willie o'neill and was like i don't care about any of that shit i only want to hear about it if he's doing this and this and this Mm -hmm. and that's the same way the institution operates where it's like um, all these other things might be going on, 
which are super influential, but the institution will only ever boil it down to these particular sets of elements that are already sort of going to confirm the, the understandings that they already had about the way things work. And ultimately, those understandings are fed into the system, at least nowadays, in large part from the corporations who buy them out and ask them to do particular kinds of research. You know what I mean? Like a prime example would be, um, oh, I can't remember what the exact chemical was, but it used to be in, in car engines. Like, I mean, obviously fossil fuels, burning fossil fuels is messing up the environment and all that kind of shit. But like back in the day, there was like this other chemical in it that was like awful for people and was accumulating in, in people's bodies. And they were finding it like in dead bodies and like, anyways, and this guy was putting in all this research and being like, we have to take this out of the out of gas because as when we burn the gas you know it gets in people's lungs it's really killing people and it's like not good for us and there were way more scientists that were like no this isn't happening because they were all basically bought out by the car companies who didn't want to have to take this shit out of the gas because it would be expensive for them eventually got out but like i mean that's just an example what i'm saying where the interests of the institution, I'm agreeing with you, the interests of the institution are ultimately, like, dubious, and, like, you can't, they're, they're not, they're not, like, a bastion of truth, like, like, how many people end up with, like, PhDs from Ivy League universities who have no fucking idea what they're talking about, and then they go on, like, Joe Rogan, and, and spew a bunch of shit that's, like, hey, shout out Joe Rogan, we're, oh, I'm, Joe Rogan, we're coming, man. we're coming, we're coming, man, <laughs> Get that DMT ready. Um, no, but I mean, you know, not to throw everybody under the bus or whatever, but like, um, and like, not even to say that necessarily like this work is quote unquote untrue, but it's like, it's, uh, it's not, it's not as sound. It's not like this, like, you know, quote unquote facts and logic. They're not like these sound provable the only thing that makes it provable is its repeatability you know and and the way you can get you can get things to be repeatable you know um in so many there's so many different kinds of confirmation bias that can enter into the equation that allows you to repeat the same event over and over and over again like and and like a quantum experiment would be a prime prime example like schrodinger's cat you know where you could repeat these experiments over and over and over again and get all these like sort of chaotic results but ultimately you kind of have to just like um remove everything from the equation except for the the few things that will give you the repeatable results you know what i mean uh not really what what would an example be um specifically when talking about institutions I read about this study um, this guy did in, this was like in the early 20th century, but what he, what he did was this study um, comes from this, a book I really like from, um, I mean, the study wasn't done in the book, but it was examined in this book. And this, this um, analysis is sort of still, is stolen from um, a guy I really like named Brian Masumi who lives in Montreal. But um, he basically, the guy like did this study where he was trying to like determine um, people's ability to recognize like a, a color or something. Basically the experiment was like, um, he 
had like several little sheets of paper that were different shades of blue and asked an individual to identify which shade of blue was the color of their like friend's eyes. And the answers were always the most extreme. There was always like the brightest blue or the darkest blue, you know, stuff like that. And um, I mean, Masumi sort of, you know, he goes through a number of explanations of why he thinks that's the case, but he basically thinks, seems to say that like the process of perceiving something or, or sensing something is always involved in an emotional process at the same time. And you can't to have an empiricism that removes emotion from the situation or removes feeling as such from a situation in order to distill thought in itself will only ever sort of remove something from thought because thought is only really an, uh, like a reflection maybe on a feeling, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just trying to describe things. There's no like absolute terms for these things because at some point, like your brain is just kind of like a chaotic indeterminate, you know, as much as neuroscience tries to like boil it down, there's still that half second, you know? Where who who the fuck knows what your brain's doing? Half second. Yeah. Try hours a day. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No 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 no. I think we got that figured out. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know. I don't know anything. I just read a book. Uh. Um, who? But yeah, the institutions—they're like, you know. There's no, I like science. I'm a big fan. Like my whole master's thesis is just acoustics basically. But, um, it's like, like there's, there are elements of chaos theory that are just true. Like there are just chaotic things out there. There's a, there are points of no return from which we cannot remove any information like a black hole is literally that I, I, I was listening to this thing the other day and uh, and this guy was talking about like how flat earth is a thing again like how people are like it's like really making a resurgence or whatever and how, how uh, shout out Alex Fournier <laughs> yeah. shout out Alex Fournier um, how like you know there's obviously like a bit of a resurgence or something or, you know, or there isn't a resurgence and it's like sensationalized in any case that it is in the public eye again. And, uh, and he, he had a really amazing quote from Kyrie Irving, who apparently is a flat earther. And I didn't know that, but apparently Kyrie Irving's like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've, I don't know what to believe. I was raised in a state where I thought that everybody was looking out for me and that everybody was telling me the truth. And if I followed these rules and blah, blah, blah. And I got to a certain point in my life and realized that no, like the state does not care about me. The state has been lying to me. How, like, why do I give a fuck whether a bunch of white people think that the earth is round or not? Which is like, unless I've seen it myself, you know, which is like the most sensible, legit. Absolutely. I've been saying, I haven't been saying it that eloquently, but like, yeah, I've basically been saying I've been raised to think that the earth is round. Yeah. It probably is round. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I can't prove that to you. Totally. 
I mean, I you know feel like we can. There are a lot of things Gravity. in my life that would not cease to hold up <laughs> if the world were around. But but this is all based off of things that we've been told. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I don't like based off the science mm-hmm. quotations. Yeah, like gravity is a thing because the world is spinning yeah well yeah i mean the but like the, the I, spinning of the world is is like you know its location and its movement are like they they have to go together in order for it to exist but like so i don't know if the spinning causes the gravity like us this like, is what i'm saying it's nobody like a, nobody knows where gravity comes from right it's like a it's like a it's like a vicious cycle of like you try to explain that the world that the earth is round yeah and then the next thing that you use to the next science that you use to explain to someone why the world is round yeah is just another thing of like well i'm pretty sure gravity yeah like sure we know gravity we're not floating around but yeah I'm also not intelligent enough to explain gravity. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. this is going to turn into a flat Earth podcast. Oh God, am I? No, flat no, no. Earther? I got I got a good place to dive dive off on this. Uh, going to go off on the Kyrie Irving thing. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's doing a master's in um, in like, uh, well, okay. So the the conversation started like this. Uh, they were like, um, oh, I just been reading so much. My friend says to them oh, what have you been reading? And they're just like, oh, just so much critical theory. And and then my friend Spencer like runs in the room and grabs me and he's like, Rob, you gotta you gotta come talk to this person. Like, you know, you read a lot of critical theory, they read a lot of critical theory. So so we started talking and they're you know, studying like indigenous rights and, and that sort of thing. And uh and they talked about how like a lot of like the new uh, indigenous critical theory stuff isn't even written in English and they refuse to translate it. And I love that. Cause it's like, cause literally like, I don't think people really understand, like, I don't know, tons of people speak more than one language, but like the, the translation is never precise, you know? Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, if it's like even between like a, a new Finlander speaking like their quote unquote patois, which sounds disgusting to call it, call it a patois, but whatever. Is that uh, what they, is that the term or is that well, it's what like, you decided? Yeah, I don't know. It's like, you know, means like a, like a, it's like a micro political language, let's say, you know, like, um, like Flemish. I mean, Flemish is a real language, but I'm, I mean, like, I've only heard it to describe, uh, like the Jamaican slang, yeah. English slang. Yeah, but I think people will use it in other contexts as well. But like, you know, there's like a bunch of things that a Newfoundlander would say to another Newfoundlander that are like, probably wouldn't, you wouldn't really be able to explain precisely what they are in in regular English unless you were to go to Newfoundland and like Re- point hold out on, the Hold on, hold on, regular English? <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. sorry to all the Newfoundlanders out there who are very all, proud of their regional dialect. And listening to this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and listening. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, they can't understand regular English, so we're fine. <laughs> no. But it, you know, uh the 
the um not not writing in english i think that's that's really valuable because i think that like it uh there are like certain paths of thought that are facilitated by the grammatization of a particular language you know and i think i mean obviously someone on the other end who's not listening right now is going boo because it's you know derrida's just like said that you know it's like that's that's gram gram grammar sort of facilitates particular lines of thinking um one way or another you know and like um yeah so what a powerful thing it would be to like be able to write theory in your in your native language to um somehow reach different conclusions or have a different idea you know yeah well okay so the first the two things that i think of when i hear this is great it's probably uh exactly their theory is exact when it's um documented in their native language mm-hmm. um but also not everyone speaks that language is ex- that what you're gonna say yeah more or less it's like at what point does critical theory like almost what like if a tree falls in the forest mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like Uh, hold on. Uh, can I answer that question just by saying that every tree that has ever fallen has made a sound and something has received that sound? There's been a sender and receiver. There's always been a signal. There's always been a memory recorded of the tree falling. Correct. It's an imperfect metaphor, but like... Right. But like, I think you're saying they're shouting into a void or something? Or like into the... Not even a void because like, I don't want to discredit their entire existence as a people. No, no, of course not. But... I don't think that's what you're trying to do. I think, can I, like, you're trying to say that basically, like, if no one can read it or understand it, no one's going to care, and then no one's going to... It's like me putting out a jazz record and and saying, well, no, it's it's only going to be on floppy disk. Right. But then, but then if you're going to, well, I mean, okay, so here's the question, is then why, like, what does the floppy disk do to your record? Like, if you're writing it on a floppy disk... If you're writing your record for a floppy disk, obviously, or maybe not, obviously, maybe there's no reason, but I feel like there would be an I mean, artistic... it would, like, again, another imperfect metaphor, but... Right. Like, you wouldn't just do it. Like, if you were to put your record on a floppy disk, like, there's probably something about the way data is stored on a floppy disk or something that does something to the sound of the record, or you just like the, the way it looks or something. Right. Right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Just a, yeah, yeah, a subtle comparison. Yeah, but like, it's a lot of work and brain power to pour into something. Yeah, and then only have no have a listen. certain amount of the population able to understand what you've written yeah that's a weird that's interesting 
couldn't you say the same thing about a lot of jazz? That's true. But but either way, it's cool. Yeah. It's a cool thing that they yeah. refuse to translate. It's like, yeah. uh, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's not it's like anything else. Hyper subversive. Yeah. I love it. It's cool. And, and, well, particularly what turns me on about it is like that. I think that you really can come to a new idea through a different, a different, uh, set of semantic coordinates. I know I used that term earlier, but like what I mean by that is just simply that, you know, when you say a word, you like, it ostensibly like has something that it's attached to, right? Like a signified object or whatever, which is just like whatever it's semantic, like it's connection to the thing that it's supposed to be is that semantics. Right. Um, and, and so a language that developed independently of Western, you know, probably not entirely like if we're to assume that we all like somehow migrated from Africa out to the different corners of the world as a species, um, you know, we could maybe assume that all the languages sort of grew from a singular point, but I mean, we don't have the historical records to be able to support a claim like that. And so, so I'm just going to say that it depended, developed independently. Um, and, uh, so like, obviously like your the experiences of a, a group of people living on this continent, um, would be pretty friggin' different, especially considering like their the type of culture that they had and the types of beliefs that they had and the way that they conducted themselves. It's not like you're not going to come to the same sets of words for things, you know. Obviously, I don't know any Anish. I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the language, to be honest. Which Anishinaabe is that right? Not sure. Or Cree, uh, or you if know, you, if you have the answer, call it. Explain, can you explain to our listeners what Pornhub is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, comedians are starting to put their specials on Pornhub. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's hilarious. Um, I just, are you going to put this on Pornhub? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Should I? There's no video. That would be kind of anticlimactic. Before we wrap this up, I've got some uh, questions. Mm-hmm. What are your top five uh, least favorite ethnicities. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, White dudes. <laughs> yeah. I'm, okay. Top, top six. Top of the list. <laughs> what are your top Shit. six? <laughs> Saw that one coming. Uh, uh, where can uh, where can our uh, well, the internet's uned- always a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Where can our uneducated victims find you oh i guess on instagram i kind of want to change my instagram though kind of don't i don't know your website yeah robert grieve music.com do you have any uh music coming out soonish i'm releasing a solo record in october october 6th i believe is the date now sweet is there going to be a release show or anything? Yeah, it's Clarinet Panic and uh, Kurt Newman's Helicopter Money and me playing solo. I Sweet. recorded the record with uh, Colin Marson, who's the guitar player for Kralis, that black metal band, or one of the black metal bands I was talking about earlier. 
and uh, in New York at his like dope studio called Menegroth the Thousand Caves. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it's so sick. Uh, where's this release show? Uh, Array. Nice. Also, just side note, mm-hmm. you should start a podcast. So you you need to do a solo podcast and just talk about stuff. Where I get where I get stoned and like ramble into a mic and throw stuff around my room. Uh well, like for real, I think that <laughs> you were headed in some awesome directions and mm. I kind of wrecked the party. Seriously, I should have just let you go. Like that this you would have a, you would have a wicked awesome solo podcast. I think it would mostly just be me. Like what I did today was just like rip off all the books that I read. I just was like, "Here's some stuff I read, guys." Like, whoa, cool, right? Um, I think that's the title of your podcast. Here's some stuff I read, guys. Yeah. Wow, cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe something to think podcast. about. But I think I want to like change my name for it or something. Mister Chaos. Van no. Wilder. <laughs> Van Wilder. <laughs> That's so sick. Uh, um, well. Well. Maybe that's it. There'll be links to cool stuff in the uh, description. Sweet. Any final remarks? Um. No. <laughs> <laughs>